Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 65 for November 3rd, 2011. Yeah, so we'll be covering the original series, issue number 16, 17, and 18 today. Volume 2, obviously, by DC Comics. Yes. We just came off of the annuals where we did both a next-gen and an original series, so now we're back to our three of each. And definitely this next three is quite different from the original Trek comic books we've seen before in the series. Right. This is uh, this is when Peter David left. Temporarily. Uh, or yeah. was it, was it, it wasn't, I mean, he comes back in 19, doesn't he? Yeah, or he no? comes back for a little while and then he's gone again. Okay. Yeah, uh, not to get into it because I was going to mention it later, but in the letters page they kind of mention that he's gone to work on the the big next-gen and original series crossover called uh, Modella something, Modella Incident or something like that, where it crosses over the two series that Peter David wrote or co-wrote. So Mm -hmm. we'll be covering that in episode number 71. Excellent. We'll just jump straight into it then. So uh, I got the uh, privileges here for the first one. Like I said, Volume 2 of Star Trek uh, by DC Comics. Uh, This issue came out February 1991 and is entitled World Singer. And the credits, which are different than what we're used to, writer J. Michael Shrenzansky. Uh, The penciler is Gordon Purcell. Inker, Arnie Starr. Letterer Bob Pinaha, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor is Robert Greenberger, based on Star Trek, created by Gene Roddenberry, which we'll talk about in a minute. I think Gene Roddenberry had a bigger say in these comic books than I ever gave him credit for. We'll talk about that when we get into the letters page. The cover shows an old-school version of Kirk, McCoy, and Spock standing over a shot of the original Enterprise with its rounded nacelles and all the glory that goes with. Below that is a smaller picture of the trio walking on a rocky world and looking up at an alien who has projecting thought beams. So uh, I guess it's a pretty cool cover, and I could never find who the cover artist was, so uncredited. So the story opens with a shot of the original Enterprise in orbit of an orange-yellow blob-looking version of a planet. So just like what you would expect from the 1960s show. The captain's log reveals that the Enterprise is in orbit to monitor the last few hours of this planet, which is entitled Theta-7. It only has a few hours before it pulls itself apart. The inhabitants of the planet have all been safely relocated to another planet. Spock's sensors pick up a life sign on the planet. Not wanting any death, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to investigate. The clock is ticking because the planet will destroy itself in only four hours. After a rough beam down, 
they find themselves in the rubble of what once must have been an impressive-looking city. They follow Spock's tricorder readings and head in. Unbeknownst to the crew, they are being watched by a willowy alien with large eyes and long green hair. And his skin is pale, pale, pale white. Kind of looks like the Joker. The crew arrives at an alien ship. They determine that it is of Theta 7's origin and must have arrived recently from the planet where everybody's been relocated to. Just then, the crew are brought down to their knees in pain as the alien telepathically commands them, Leave this place. The dazed crew pick themselves up. McCoy is sporting a bloody nose. Kirk tries to talk with the unseen alien, advising that the planet is about to destroy itself. In reply, Kirk again is brought down in pain as the alien tells him, I will stay. You must leave. The bloody McCoy asks if he can talk a little quieter, and the alien complies. He reveals himself to them and explains that he is the world singer. It is his lot in life to hear the songs of the planet. With this connection, he was able to tell his people where to mine and what to do so that they would not harm the planet. He sings them a song that retells the full history of the planet over the last two billion years. Kirk is awakened from the song by Spock, and they notice that the alien is no longer with them. Just then, a massive earthquake shakes the ground and causes several of the decrepit buildings to fall almost on top of them. The crew is able to make their way into a cave, and they contact Scotty, who informs them that the planet is about to self-destruct in less than three hours. The crew spend this time to go out and try to find the alien again. Spock and McCoy have some back-and-forth interactions about the separation between mysticism and science. Spock does not believe that they are mutually exclusive. The alien is alone, talking to himself, that he is ready to die and will peacefully await the destruction. Kirk is recording his captain's log, lamenting about the great loss of the planet. He seems to be taking it quite hard, and wonders what this place might have been like in its prime. They stumble across the alien, and the alien in informs Kirk that they share the same thoughts. As a gift to the crew, they are able to see the planet as it once was, with children and families in the street, banners on the buildings, and crafts in the air. Everyone is smiling and happy. When the illusion is over, the alien informs them that it is his place to stay here until the end. Kirk simply informs them that he can remove him by force if he needed to. The alien agrees that he could do that, but states that if he did, then he would find a way to kill himself later, so that no matter what they do, he will die. Kirk has a sidebar with Spock and McCoy. He informs them that he's going to stay on the planet and die with the alien, knowing that in his gut the alien will not allow him to die and will agree to beam up willingly. The two of them comply and beam away, and Kirk informs the alien that he's going to stay with him until the very, very end. On the ship, Scotty informs Spock that the conditions are worsening. Spock tells the bridge crew that they are going to wait until the very last second or until they hear back from Kirk. On the planet, the world singer is feeling all the planet's destruction. At the last second, he agrees to return with Kirk in order to preserve Kirk's life. On the ship, their orbit is decaying, and again, at the very last second, Kirk calls for the beam-up. 
The transporter is locked on and the ship attempts to break free. Just as it looks like it's about to become grim, Sulu is able to pull out and Scotty is able to get the transporter buffers to work and rematerialize the captain and his guest. The closing captain's log informs us that the alien has joined a Starfleet vessel that specializes in monitoring dying worlds. He travels to these planets to learn their songs before they're lost forever. The end. What a sentimental story. Yeah, the world singer. Yes. Uh, definitely not your typical action-packed Trek adventure, I must say. I mean, they had stuff falling and like, oh, are they going to get away in time before the uh, planet explodes? Which creates some artificial tension. But really, it was just a pretty sentimental kind of softy episode. Or right, it, wasn't, it was just those last two panels where they were really trying to make you feel like, oh, the ship's going to get destroyed and the pattern buffer's not going to work. Exactly. And then, like I said, in the next panel, all good. Exactly. You just got to get Scotty at the controls of the transport. That's all you need. Yeah, I just I just thought that was a little anticlimactic because there was no tension up until that moment, and then you knew that it was had to get resolved before the next page because the book was almost over. Right. Anyways, but I was pretty excited at first that it was a flashback episode, but then the story itself wasn't all that great. Yeah, uh, and, and that gets back to the point we made at the beginning of the uh, episode. Um, Definitely, we were in the uh, in the middle of the movie time frame. Everybody had the cool red tunic uniforms and the refitted Enterprise were there and everything. And then, boom, with issue 16, we're back in time in uh, original TV series time period. Or maybe the fourth season, you know, whatever. Um, the Mysterious, or the, the Mysterious fourth year, which we never really saw except in comic book form. And cartoon form. Uh, yeah, whatever. We saw that fourth and fifth year because there was two seasons <laughs> of the animated series, my friend. Uh-huh. Two seasons. Uh-huh. Okay, anyway. So uh, so it was kind of interesting how uh, unexpectedly thrown into a, an earlier time period. Right. And then, as we'll see in the next issue, uh, we get put back into the uh, the future again. Right. Early time period. And this is the only one out of the three that was written by this uh, Straczynski. Straczynski. Uh, yeah. So the rest of them are written by Howard Weinstein. Uh, so I don't know if this was a filler issue or what. but it, uh, uh, That's definitely my theory. Because oh, yeah? cause definitely they, they talked about having some, um, some production difficulties, which uh, I guess we talked about before. So between issue 14 and 15 or something like that, there was a lapse of a month where they, they didn't publish. So right. I, think they, I think they were still catching up with uh, some production difficulties of some kind, coordination with Paramount, whatever. They said a couple things in the letters section of this, uh, this issue. Right. Um, and and I, I think they, they just took this filler comic issue and they stuck it in there to help cover the, uh, the production difficulties they were having. Now, it seems odd to me that they would go to the trouble of producing a comic, because it takes, takes a lot of effort to put together something like this that they just have on the shelf, but I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah obviously, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that explanation is completely valid. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, maybe 
maybe this guy, uh, maybe they didn't like his work as much, so they got Howard Weinstein for the next couple issues. Uh, I, I don't know, but I, J. Michael Straczynski is a great writer. Um, he wrote the uh, the recent Thor script, movie script. Oh, really? Yeah, and he, of course, is responsible for Babylon 5 uh, TV oh. show. So he's a really a great writer. And quite frankly, when I saw it was him that wrote this, it was like, whoa, I'm looking forward to this because I'm a big Babylon 5 fan. I'm I, sorry out there for people who might not like Bab 5, but I thought it was great. Uh, I was kind of disappointed in the follow-up uh, series, uh, Crusade, which I did like, but I just didn't think it was as high a quality. Yeah, I was looking. I, I was expecting. I mean, it's a it's a nice issue. It's a nice story, but you know, it's not one of those things I'm going to go back and read again. So I was a little huh. a little disappointed uh, in, in the story. It was not a higher. Did not hold my interest more, more firmly. Yeah, and this is the only thing that uh, this is the only Star Trek expanded universe stuff that J. Michael Straczynski ever did. Oh, really? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I've never seen anything else that he's done in in Trekland, but he's done a lot. He does, he's done comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they said that he's done other DC and Marvel comics, but this was his right. only Star Trek. Right. Huh. Anyway, that's uh, cool. And, and of course, the the Thor movie was pretty good. So it was pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it was interesting seeing the crew uh, young and svelte again. You know. You have a different opinion on this than I did when these were coming out, okay. um, because I never bought this issue when I was a kid. Okay. Because because of that, because I see, I, I was a fan of the movie Trek and not the TV Trek. I thought the TV <laughs> Trek was really cheesy, and anytime it was gold and blue shirts, I was out. Wait, okay. You think City on the Edge of Forever was cheesy? As a kid, yes. Oh, okay. Now, I'm not going to make pronouncements on, on a child's uh, opinion on things. Right. But, I mean, when yeah, these I mean, came they, out, they, I was. There were some, there were definitely some bad issues. Oh, my God, Spock's brain. But <laughs> there were so many excellent ones, too. Anyway. Yeah, but when you're a kid and you grew I up know, on Star right. Wars and the movies, when you watch those old cheesy special effects, you just. It just took me out of it. I couldn't appreciate it for the story. I, I had to have the flash because, so, you know, I was young. Okay, so you didn't like Doctor Who either then? Oh, no. I didn't like Doctor Who until way later. Right. Okay. And uh, I d didn't watch Lost in Space. I remember those reruns coming on. and Talk about cheese. When they would come on, I would be heading outside to do whatever. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well. Yeah. I mean, I live with that. I, 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 we're, we're from different time periods. So, I mean, that's right. what I grew up with. So I loved it. Yeah. So I was uh, still pretty young when these, when this issue came out. So I, it was not a, uh, it was not a buy for me. Cool. cool. But, well, um, something that took me back to the original series, which you hate so much, uh, I don't was hate on it. page. <laughs> oh, I think you said that uh, on page seven when the alien is, is, is first inflicting pain uh, upon the landing party and they're like all feeling pain i mean shatner's on his knees his arms are down his head's up i mean you can almost hear him saying pain you know <laughs> in that shatner-esque over the top way so i mean the drawing i mean i like I, I like the art in this one i mean it wasn't absolutely stellar i mean it wasn't like idw quality but it was really good 
and it was accurate. The actors looked like the actors. And when they went to the trouble of basically recreating one of the over-the-top style moments from the original series, I mean, position uh, Kirk's body is in and everything, I just loved it. That's great. Yeah, on page seven and on page eight. Uh, two different poses, but right, but very similar. similar. But, but seven is the, maybe seven is the first one I saw, so it really hit me. Yep. But uh, huh. yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm with <laughs> you. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah, the, the the one hand is a little above the other one, and he's like he's constricting his whole body. It's like oh pain. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Sorry, let's move on. And then the one on page eight reminded me of Where No Man Has Gone Before, where Gary Mitchell was making him bow to him. Oh, yes. Yes, I agree. And he's trying to fight it, and his hands are trembling. his hands go together, and it's like... Exactly, and that's what page eight reminded me of when I was looking at it. Yep, that's it. That's it, man. Yeah, no, I thought that that was pretty cool. Speaking of page seven and page eight, did you notice that McCoy's bloody nose switches nostrils? So on page... Page well, eight, it's his right nostril, and then on page nine, it's his left nostril. Okay, that's very possible, and I didn't notice it, but I will say that he was, uh, they were attacked, I mean, they had the the pain thing twice. Right. So I don't know. So you think he got both nostrils? Yeah, at different times, yes. <laughs> I, I, that, that's what I'm, I'm throwing it out there. But good, good point, good point. That's funny. What I find very interesting about that uh, is the fact that uh, their observation that, that McCoy is so sensitive to the telepathic impulses, which is a, a bit of a revelation. And I think this kind of hinted at when McCoy in the future being so sensitive to telepathic stuff, which is amazing for a stick in the mud like McCoy, where he, he maybe was a, even a better than normal human uh, host for Spock's Katra at the end of Wrath of Khan. Yeah, I was wondering if that was supposed to be some sort of reference to that because Spock makes a comment that he'll have to remember that in the future. Right. And I'm like, that's kind of an unneeded tie-in to Wrath of Khan and oh, Search for Spock. Why not? I, I liked it. <laughs> I don't know. I liked it. Of course, the thing is, it was a situation of opportunity. There wasn't anybody else around but McCoy. True. So, I mean, yeah. Anyway. All right, just to take a step back here a little bit to talk about the predicament that this planet's in. To begin with, everybody on this planet was relocated, yet nobody wanted to watch the planet become, you know, destroy itself from a distance. Well, maybe it was a thing like uh, if you got a hurricane coming in, everybody's forced to evacuate or I don't know. Right. But, you know, I mean, not to always bring up Doctor Who, but there's that episode of Doctor Who where the ninth doctor takes Rose to watch the Earth blow up. Oh, in the far future. Right. And, uh, you know, I kind of think that that's what would happen. You know, when a building is demolished now, everybody who used to live in that building or played games in that building or whatever that building was used for, you know, there's there's a big group of people that want to watch it become, you know, dirt. You know, there's there's always (laughs) there's always an audience for something like that. And I found it hard to believe that nobody on this planet you know, was was trying to watch it from a distance. Right. Well, uh, another example of that, wasn't it uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, where they had the uh, the dinner at the end of the universe episode or something? Oh, yeah, that's one of the later right. later books. I haven't got that far yet. Oh, oh, sorry. Anyway. I'm sorry. I think, it's yeah, the title. I think that's the title of the book. Yeah, it's something like that. Uh, or... 
restaurant at the end of the universe? I don't know, something like that. Um, like but yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, but, you know, agreed, but, you know, they just tried to make it like the Enterprise was the last ship out. Right. Whatever. Yeah, and did you not get the original series vibe when you saw that planet when the Enterprise is first in orbit of it? I, I didn't notice that, but when you mentioned that at the beginning of your synopsis, you, you are quite right. Because every was, planet in the ret- original series retro. looked like just a big blob of color. Exactly, because they just didn't have the money or something, or attack right. or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Which is why a little kid my age wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you didn't like it when they got the AMT model of the Enterprise and just took a big lighter, and then that was the was the constellation that was flying into the maw of the Doomsday Machine? You didn't like that? You didn't think that was top-shelf special effects? I, I didn't know that. Amu, you're did. picky. You're spoiled. You're spoiled. That's the problem. You're a spoiled kid. Huh. No. But I did catch the Psy 2000 reference. That, Psy, uh, two. That Psy Spock, 2000? I don't Spock get it. Spock makes the reference of, you know, because Kirk seems really upset that this planet's destroying itself for some yes. reason. Yeah. He seems particularly uh, in tune with the uh, the destruction. And then at the, before they beam down, Spock makes a reference that this is nothing like Psy, uh, or this is not unlike Psy 2000, which is the planet that they were at uh, on, in the Naked Now, or on the Naked Time episode that was going through the same thing. They oh. ended up contracting that disease and becoming drunk, and then the Enterprise was going to get caught up in the planet destroying itself, but they were able to get out in the nick of time. Oh, yeah. Well, oh boy, that's uh, I haven't seen that episode in ages. That's the but, famous. Yeah. That's like the f- most famous episode. Like heck, it is. Are you, are you nuts? Sulu running around shirtless. No fencing. That yeah. is not the most famous one. That's one of the weaker ones, quite frankly. Although they did get a chance to do, uh, you know, unusual things. Mm. Yeah, that was the one where uh, Riley or somebody's like singing in engineering yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, that, that wasn't. If, if you see any kind of ranking, you must be kidding. If you see a ranking of any kind of the original episodes as far as quality, that one is lucky if it makes the middle of the pack. Yeah, but anytime you just see random pictures of Star Trek, that one with Sulu fencing always oh, yeah. makes the stack. Well, that's true. That's true. It's one and... of the most iconic images <laughs> of Star Trek is him standing there on guard. <laughs> and when I was a youngin' going to my first Star Trek convention, and getting George Takei to sign, somebody brought up a, a, a picture of that, like it was in front of me, and had mm-hmm. him sign that, and he kind of like grimaced and was kind of embarrassed. And he said, oh, you got this one. <laughs> He's a little uh, shy about that. Yeah, that was what, like the third or fourth episode? I mean, that was really early on in the it was, uh, it was publishing. It was first season. Yeah. First season. No way. All right, so, uh, so back to the – we got kind of off subject. I wanted to talk about the planet becoming – destroyed yes if if this world singer was so in tune to the planet what was causing the planet to destroy itself in the it never explained no i think it was just natural causes i mean you'd think it would be like the sun the sun going supernova or something their star going supernova but that wasn't it or overmining Uh, or something something. man-made but it was it was just it was just breaking up and I, i they never explained it and I just thought it was weird that the world singer mentioned that he was able to tell his people where to mine so that it wouldn't harm the planet and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, right. but it ended up 
being destroyed within your lifetime. I, yeah. I didn't get the feeling like he was a million years old. Yep. So within the last 40, 50 years, you know, you were doing your job, but the planet still destroyed itself. It, yeah, and, and if and if it's going to destroy itself in some big, big cataclysmic thing, unless it was caused by some gravitational thing of, of some heavenly body that came too close to it or something, that probably would have been a process you'd be aware of well ahead of it happening. What well, it, su- it surprised the Kryptonians, so I guess it could happen <laughs> pretty quick. <laughs> and they weren't advanced people. Right, so... Uh, advanced crystal right. people. Anyway. <laughs> all right, well, I have to give the World Singer a pass on that one, because if it can trick the Kryptonians, I guess it could trick the yeah. the World Singer. I, I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> well, something I was kind of wondering about Rel, the World Singer, is... Um, oh, the, that's his name, Rel. Yeah, I forgot Rel. that. Well, I had too until I happened to spot it in my notes. I kept on calling him the alien. And really, he's not the alien. It's actually... I mean, they're on his planet, so he's really technically not the alien. But um, <laughs> so Rel was so broken up about about his planet breaking up. So okay, so he he leaves in the end. He he comes to grips with it. The the planet dies, and he finally feels he could leave. And what does he do? He gets a job with Starfleet to go to a whole bunch of other planets that die. It's like, jeez. If it broke you up that much, I mean, you're going to get a job doing it? I don't know. It just yeah, seemed so he, a little... He, he's just going to go from planet to planet crying like he does on that last picture. Exactly. <laughs> it's very depressing. Anyway. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Yeah. Um, another thing is, Rel reminded me, and I know you're going to say, but look at the eyes. He reminds me a bit of Futon. Yeah. He's very thin and... Yeah, very thin, very ta- very thin, tall. Um, the the nose, I don't know what it is. Something in the in the face. It just reminds me of futon, uh, but obviously the eyes are totally different. Yeah, and no, I got the futon vibe too. Yeah. Uh, oh, and my last thing I want to say about this is, who is the guy in the red Mister Rogers sweater vest standing behind Scotty? On page 11. Page 11. I have never seen... (laughs) Yeah. I have never seen a Starfleet officer in a comfy sweater vest. Yeah, so it's like he has, like, the uh, motion picture era... Turtleneck. White turtleneck. Yeah, turtleneck. And then he has, like, a, a Mr. Rogers vest on. Yeah, I don't know. Sweater vest. It's a sweater vest. Look at it. Yeah, no, I see it. I was like, what? Who? What? Wait a minute. The captain gets to have multiple uniforms, not you, engineering guy. <laughs> Behind yeah. Scotty. Anyway, no, just, it's, it's true. I and did you notice that McCoy's and suit, uh, Spock's shirts are distinctly different colors? They're different shades of blue. I, I kind of did, but, you know, as you say, it's a production problem. Well, I was wondering if they were trying to go for, you know, McCoy did have a different shirt than Spock did. McCoy's well, shirt was kind of like, you know, silky looking. Oh, no, no. Okay, that's just one of them. But he did he he wore that on the ship. Right, I don't remember right. I don't remember him ever wearing that silky looking one uh, on an away mission. Yeah, and it was short sleeve and this is definitely long sleeve. Right. All I, right. I, I think I it was, normally was the same color. Uh, I but I was just trying to give him give him something. Yeah. Trying to give him a pass, but I guess not. Yeah. Uh, McCoy's 
shirts a little more towards the purple. A little. Or a lavender? I don't know, something like that. Yeah, but I mean, it's consistently that way. So I mean, even on the cover, it's that way. Right. Yeah. Odd. Yeah. So I guess it must have been a conscious decision by the inker. By the colorer. Or colorist? Right. Colorist. There you go. Tom. McCraw, Tom, right? Yeah, Tom McCraw. Okay. All right, I got I got a couple more things if I can real quick. Please. Um, I, I thought it was funny that they had such a hard time beaming down, and then they obviously had a hard time beaming uh, Kirk, but they had no problem beaming Spock and McCoy up in right. the middle. Yep. And, and you figured when they had such a hard time coming down, I mean, I figured they were going to have some kind of artificial kind of thing. Oh, it's hard to get them back up again or something. Right. It's just that I, I agree with you. I, I found it kind of odd that uh, that McCoy and Spock went up with no trouble. Yeah. And I thought it was a little odd. I mean, I understand why they did it, but it seems stupid for Kirk to risk his his life, the ship's life, everybody's life just to save one person. Yeah, I agree. And... You know, you know they just kind of make an offhanded mark that they already relocated everybody, but you know they didn't relocate all the plants and animals and everything else on that planet. So yeah. there was already a lot of death going on there. Would you really risk all those people to save one person who was determined to stay there? Yeah, and that's a good point. Bad enough, bad enough that Kirk is in direct risk, but uh, Spock was consciously keeping. Um, the whole ship there. Right. Very risky. Very risky. But you know, risk is part of being in that chair. <laughs> and that was from? That's from an episode, I'm sure. It sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, I think it's pretty much from uh, from Generations. Was it Generations? Yeah, I was thinking, uh, oh, when he's berating Harriman. Well, I don't think he's berating him. He's just telling him. Well, yeah, a little bit. Because, uh, because Harriman is, is hesitant taking the ship into the anomaly. Right. The Nexus. The Nexus. But Kirk says, risk is part of being in that chair. Anyway, something like that. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's all, all right. I have to say about it. All right. One other thing. Or actually, two other things. One, just love the shot of the Enterprise leaving the destroyed planet. Cool. It's, it's a great shot on page whatever. Good. Yeah, I think the art's quite good in this. Page 22. Yeah. All right, and then the last thing, again, is the letters page. I have a lot to talk about letters, these three issues. But uh, somebody wrote a top tw- tw- uh, blah, blah. somebody wrote a top 10 list about the first 12 issues of this series. And for number five, he randomly put Tim Drake. Tim and, Drake? Yeah, Tim Drake. Okay. You know, after he was talking about how great Peter David was, how great this was, how great that was, and then he just wrote Tim Drake. And even the editor, Robert Greenberger, uh, I guess was thrown for a loop because his only comment at the end of that letter was, you know, Yeah, Tim I see Drake, it. Question mark. <laughs> yeah, gee, thanks. One question. Tim Drake? <laughs> so, but what's funny is that, you know, this came out in 1991, uh, or at least has a cover date in 91. It might have actually come out at the end of two, 1990, but... Uh, What's funny, at that same time, DC Comics has Batman, and they were just introducing the Tim Drake Robin, who was the third Robin. Oh. So Tim Drake started in 1989 and actually became Robin uh, in September of 1990. So I just thought it was weird that you know this big event in Batman land 
<laughs> is going on. And then some guy writes Star Trek and says, number five great thing about Star Trek, Tim Drake. <laughs> <laughs> I was thrown for a loop. At first I thought, well, maybe was this did this predate you know him becoming Robin? But no, it didn't. It was right, actually right at the same time. Anyways, I just thought that was weird. Well, that was a current event that the guy just had to gush about, I guess. Yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm talking to DC Comics. I'm going to let them know I like Tim Drake. Yeah. And I, I think, in particular, I'm glad you pointed me to that top ten list, because, of course, what was number one? Which I thoroughly agree with. I think you do, too. Oh, R.J. Blaze, swimsuit. Yep, from issue number ten. Huzzah! I, I would have rather said humana, 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 but yes. Yeah. When, when we post this episode, or... Maybe not this episode, but anybody who's listening to this episode, go to the website. I have a good picture of R.J. Blaze and uh, the picture of – who was the uh, model that that was? Ellie based? McPherson. Yeah, there you go. Oh, and she was one of my favorite Sports Illustrated swimsuit models. Oh, yes. <laughs> a gift from Australia. So, uh, but – all right. Well, I was going to mention this uh, later, but they're talking about uh, – R.J. Blaze here in this top ten list, mm-hmm. which is mentioned what, two or three times. When we get to issue number 19, they actually explain why R.J. Blaze is no longer in the series. Oh. And it was actually, she was taken out because Gene Ronberry said she needed to be taken out. That he didn't want Kirk to have an ongoing romance. On the ship. And, yeah, and so they had to just drop her storyline. So if you remember, like during the uh, Lost in Space trilogy that we did the last time we did original series, she was oh. in the first issue, and then she's just gone. Yeah. And that's what they said. You know, we were told we had to drop her, so she's gone. Without any, and we can't even mention her again. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Which is not true because they do end up mentioning her again because she does. She does make at least one appearance where we find out what her her name is yeah but uh i did like i said i i found out through these three issues that i think gene ronberry had a lot more to do with uh these comics than i gave him credit for or a lot more power to kill things he didn't like obviously well i know that he he killed uh like um lieutenant lee that was sulu's girl there for a while uh-huh. and merez who was that right. demon girl demon chick and futon he he made them get rid of all of them because he wanted the focus on the original crew and not on okay, the so, secondary characters. So when you had talked before, spoken before about how uh, how Peter David was supposedly coming up with too many characters, um, and that Paramount didn't like it or the you know, right. whatever, it was really Roddenberry. I guess so. That's what these huh. letter columns make it sound like. I always thought huh. it was just Paramount itself. I yeah. didn't know that it was Gene Roddenberry himself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so if anybody has power over, it'd be Roddenberry. Any individual, that is. Right. Interesting. So, it, it is interesting. Mm. All right. That was it. You want okay. to go into number 17? Let's do it. Number 17 is titled Partners. March 1991 is published date. And we have uh, Howard Weinstein, the writer. Penciler is Ken Hooper. Inker, Bob Dvorak. Letters, Bob Pinaha. Colorist, Tom McCraw. Editor is Robert Greenberger. The cover presents most of the Taz bridge crew in movie-era uniforms and at the movie-era age, unlike the last one. Two planets and three shooting comets are at the top, and the Enterprise is coming head-on at the reader at the bottom of the cover. The story opens on the starship Lafayette, 
a variant on the relying class of starships. Captain Anderson is recording her log and saying they are on escort duty, passing the outer boundary of the Nidron system. The science officer warns the captain of something on sensors, when suddenly a ship of unknown configuration decloaks too close to the Lafayette. It is bearing down on them. It opens fire on the Lafayette. Phases are offline. Shields will not raise. Just when they look like they're done for, a Klingon ship arrives, fires, and drives the aggressive strangers off. At warp 15, the Klingons don't stick around, and a disabled Lafayette calls Starfleet for help. Scene shifts to the Enterprise that was dispatched to investigate what has come to be known as the Lafayette Incident. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy discuss the situation. To avoid a trade dispute, the Nidrans asked for aid in protecting trade routes. Both the Klingon and Federation sent light cruisers for protection against an enemy that attacked their trade ships. Before they talk to the Nidrans, Captain Kirk decides to talk to both captains involved in the attack. First, they talk to Captain Anderson of the Lafayette. She says if the Klingons had not shown up when they did, she would have lost her entire crew instead of just over half. Due to their ability to sneak up on the Lafayette so totally, she asserts their attackers were waiting for them. It was a trap. Kirk points out that the trade routes and schedules are kept secret. For them to know where the Lafayette would be and when, there would have to have been some kind of a leak. Captain Anderson states, If there is a leak, then the attacks will happen again. She says they need more ships to protect the routes. When she leaves the room to continue dealing with ship repairs, Spock conjectures that more Starfleet ships will mean more Klingon ships, too. Next, Kirk speaks to the Klingon captain, named Keaton, through a video comm channel that links to both bridges. The conversation is brief when Keaton refuses to answer the first question because he views it as giving away tactical information about the Klingon ship's sensor capabilities. Before the conversation ends, Keaton informs Kirk a Klingon battlecruiser is on its way, and when that happens, he will turn command of the Klingon forces in the area over to Commodore Kesri. Ahura informs Kirk, Sally Gallen, the mining company director in charge of resource transportation, wants to speak to Kirk now. Kirk sighs and agrees. She's beamed aboard, and they meet in a conference room. Miss Gallen demands that Kirk actively hunt down their attackers and bring in more Federation ships to protect their cargo transports, or she will shut down the whole mining operation. If she shuts down the operation, colonists will not get the materials they desperately need, which will weaken the Federation's ability to keep the Klingons in check. She will not risk her people or ships anymore. The meeting ends. Chekhov reports that the Klingon Imperial Cruiser Success is approaching. A video channel is open, and Kirk welcomes Commodore Kesri to the Nidron system. The Commodore is a matter-of-fact kind of Klingon that states he is likely not welcome in the system, but since the Empire has interests to protect, he is here to make progress. He turns down Kirk's second request for sensor readings from the Klingon light cruiser. They agree to meet in one hour with the Crown Moloch of the Nidron Government Assembly. Scene shifts to a small ship on the fringes of the Nidron system, where a lowly-looking alien named Zandir 
is sending a hail to something named Vanguard. After a short wait, he is joined by a huge ship that fills the tiny ship's view screen. He speaks to a nasty-looking alien in a military uniform. He appears to be the captain of the ship, and he is full of attitude and speaks derogatorily of the Klingons and Federation as yesterday's news and soft. Zandir disagrees and says they should not underestimate the Federation or the Klingons. The captain essentially says he can either be on the bus and help the Tyrion vanguard take the Nidran system or be under the bus. Zandir buys a first-class ticket and takes transmitters from the vanguard to make him a more efficient spy. Captain Trevin's first officer, Tyron, questions whether they should take the Enterprise and Klingons more seriously. The captain replies, it might not be easy, but the, the Tyrion way has never been easy. They are strong, and the strong take what they want. Scene cuts to the Crown Palace in Nidra's capital city. The Crown Malik is on her throne, speaking down to Kirk Spock and the Klingon Commodore. She asks them their intent towards Nidra. They both say that they will help with securing their trade routes, and if needed, their planet. Kirk suggests that information is being fed to their mysterious enemy, and all with that knowledge should be investigated. Commodore Kesri receives word that the Klingon light cruiser is under attack. They and the Enterprise depart to aid the, aid the attacked ship. And the strange partnership begins. They find the ship severely attacked, with many dead and wounded, like the Lafayette. The Commodore asks to bring his sick and injured for treatment to the Enterprise. They do so, and in return, the Commodore shares their sensor data on the enemy. They see what the ship looks like, and sees they have very effective weapons, a better cloak than the Klingons, and engines with superior speed. After the Commodore returns to his ship, one of the wounded Klingons, named Daig, asks to speak to Kirk. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy hear the story from the Klingon ship's defense officer. He was in charge of the ship's sensors, and just before the attack, he knew that someone had tampered with them so that he could not see the attacking ship until they were on top of them. Only another dead officer and the captain has security access to the scanners. Meanwhile, in an undisclosed location, the Klingon captain of the light cruiser in blue duds is handing a memory crystal to the spy Zandir. He says it holds the travel plans of the combined Klingon and Starfleet convoys. With that information, the Vanguard can trap two mighty starships and destroy them. Without them, the Nidrans would be open for conquering by the Tyrions. On the Enterprise Bridge, Uhura reports she has picked up a coded transmission originating from the planet and beamed out into the black. She has a fix on the transmission coordinates, but needs more time to locate the target. Kirk orders Chekhov to assemble a security team to see who is doing the transmitting. He orders Uhura to work on breaking the code so they can tell what the secret transmission is all about. Kirk says he wants answers yesterday. To be continued. Huh? Huh? Lots of intrigue. Lots of intrigue. And action. And 
what appears to be a challenging new foe. The how did you pronounce them? Uh, well, they're called, they call themselves the Vanguard, but the let me see, uh, Tyrions. Tyrions. That's, that's the way I'm trying to pronounce it anyway. Right. T y r i o n s. Yeah, no, I was mainly asking just because I'm going to have to pronounce it a lot here in a second, and I wanted to make sure I had it right. <laughs> yeah, well, some of these pronunciations, they're not always obvious. And I so. i failed to think I got them right, uh, necessarily. But at least if we're consistent, at least we'll be right in our minds. Right. And then it'll just be, you know, other people writing us saying, it's pronounced Tarion. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Don't you realize it's pronounced? No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. what's funny about these books and like Star Tre- or Star Wars books and stuff. You you get to the point where you stop even trying to pronounce the names and you just yeah. like just go with it. Just yeah, just make up something. Yeah, some cl- you're, just you're be close. Yeah, you recognize the the sets of letters and you're like, okay, that's that's the Wookiee. That's the third cousin of Chewbacca. Got it. I will never okay. try to pronounce his name. <laughs> right. Anyways. So, uh, just just uh, talking about the cover, do you think that this cover was kind of a... Do you think this cover and the cover from the previous issue kind of match a little bit? Or at least kind of the same vibe? Like, this it, this was the ori- this was the movie version and that was the TV version? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, they definitely have similarities. Yeah, yeah, the layout's kind of the same. I mean, you got more people on this one than you did in right. the last one, but... Yeah, definitely on the previous one, issue sixteen, it was definitely mainly the the big three, right? Uh, but yeah, it's it's a similar kind of thing. You know, the the main characters throw a few ships in there, throw a few other things that are pertinent to the storyline at hand, and you're done. Yep, they're quite like nice. They're, they're they're good. That's the way covers should be. I love yep. them. And I especially like this look on Scotty's face in issue seventeen on the cover. Angry or. Well, he looks a little on the piss side, but definitely determined. I was going to say annoyed. <laughs> uh, maybe annoyed, but he definitely looks determined. Yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. Spock looks particularly accurate, I think. I mean, he looks pretty old. I mean, he's pretty wrinkly and craggy face, but he looks just particularly accurate to me in that drawing. Oh, I think they all look really well. Yeah. Well, yeah, everybody looks good, but I think Spock in particular looks good. And I actually think J- J- Jimmy Doohan looks really good, too. Hmm. So what do you think about the art over, uh, for the rest of the issue? Don't it's, like it. It's different than what we've been getting. Yeah, it's 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 not as good. I mean, uh, I think issue 16 had good art. I mean, yeah. absolutely stellar, no, but really good. Accurate. Well, it was the same guy we've been having, Gordon Purcell. Well, yeah, that's fine, but I'm comparing it to this one. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, whereas this one and the next one, it's not the same level of quality. Yeah, the... To me, everybody looks flat, like like their little cardboard cutouts or whatever. There's, uh, uh. I don't get a sense of dimension, really. Yeah. Anyways, um, okay. And, and in particular, I think I think there are some panels where he's done a particularly bad job on William Shatner. Well, it's the they use the same shot uh, of them kind of like looking up at the sky, and you get like a a chin shot. And it always looks looks weird. He, it's like you see the the captain of the other ship do it once, and then you see Shatner doing it a couple times, and yeah. it's just an odd pose. Uh, well, 
Yeah, odd pose, but I mean, just the look of them. On page five, there's a profile of, of Kirk and, and the nose and exactly how the mouth is drawn. I, I'm sorry, that's not William Shatner. And then um, there's another one on page 13 where I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself with this, but he reminds me of Jimmy Durante. It's like the nose is totally too big, if you know who Jimmy Durante is. I've heard um, the name. Yeah, well, a, a old-time vaudevillian comic, and he had a big nose. He was nose. He was known as the Schnaz. And uh, oh, is he the one that went? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ha, cha, 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 cha. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, on thirteen in the middle, I mean that close-up, but it only shows part of his head. I mean, all of his face, pretty much all of his face. But you know, and this was a close-up shot, and that nose is terrible. I mean, it just isn't good. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And then the alien ships, I thought, were really odd-looking. They're just... Uh, the like, Klingon battlecruiser? What the that, heck was that about? Well, not, not, I wasn't talking about that. I was talking more about the, uh, the Vanguard ship. Oh, well, I agree, but they both were not good. And you, okay, you want me to jump to my... Oh, you finish your comment about the Vanguard ship, and I, I'm gonna, I want to give you mine. Oh, well, I was just saying that they look like just, they're just really blocky. They look, they don't look like squares, but they look, everything's a straight angle and it just looks weird. It's, it's a, it's a unique ship design. I will give it that. However, uh, especially when you look at it from the front, like it's coming at you, the front of it looks like a bird beak. It looks like a bird beak. Yep. It looks like a bird beak. And especially towards the end. (laughs) On page 16, it looks like it. Where there's like four of them. Well, no, on page 16, there's just one, but it's oh, okay. the, the shot of the nose or the beak part, and it really yeah. looks like one of those fake glasses you would put on a, on a, on a person that has the big nose. Right. Oh, yeah, right. All, okay. all you're missing is the glasses part, and you, it would look like there was a ship there, and then someone put those nose glasses on it. Uh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it, 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 it's weird. Uh, okay, so I, I'm, I'm not going to give my comment until the next issue, because it's the next issue that has the particularly interesting... Um, shot. Okay. And I'm going to tell you exactly what those Vanguard ships are look like in All that right. other uh, the next issue's uh, artistry. So I'm sure. not going to say it now. Alright, well let's hold off on that then. Okay, but it's exciting. Okay. <laughs> uh, the Battlecruiser, the Klingon Battlecruiser success. It looks like a Lego toy. It's just blocky and nothing smooth about it. It's just, it just I just don't like it. Like on there on page 14 you mean? Um, in multiple pages, I don't like it. But, uh, yes, 14 in particular. I mean, look at that. What yeah, is that? It looks weird, and then it has, like, like little bulbous things on the on the bridge. Oh, yeah, the, and, and other Klingon ships have had that, but it's the way they draw it. I mean, they're, ex- I mean, they're really accentuating it. Right. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it just, uh, yeah. Yeah, looks yeah. weird. It's weird. Yeah. Not good. Yeah, the Enterprise looks okay. You know, I, I don't have any complaints about the Enterprise in general. I mean, not a, not a great shot, not a great drawing, but it's accurate enough. Well, a lot of times, anytime the Enterprise is in movement, they've drawn it like super slick, as if it didn't have any detail at all. Mm. Um, maybe that's more in the next issue than this one. Yeah. So, did you get a Star Wars Episode One vibe with all the trade dispute talk? Uh, no, I didn't even think of that. Although, now that you bring it up, yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah I thought it was funny because, you know, everybody harps on Star Wars 
episode one for being all trade and taxation and all that goodness. Right. And, and uh, government. And, yeah, and this issue, that's basically all, all it's about. Yeah. Well, I think both issues are quite good. I like the stories, and I like how the Federation and Klingons are brought together to deal with this situation as as unwilling equals. Right. But they still don't trust each other. So there's somewhat of a relationship built up between Kirk and the Commodore, the Klingon Commodore. But, and he, well... Well, that's more next there, there, There's, well, okay, but there's a lot of things there... There's a lot of things they need to balance in this issue. And as we'll see in the next issue, I like how Kirk continues to use his brains more than Braun to deal with the situation. That's, and that's really kind of spills over into my comment for the next issue when it, when it all wraps up. But Kirk is definitely living the Picard motto of I'd rather outthink them than outfight them. And I like that. Right. I, and I do like how Kirk's trying to work with them, you know, somewhat. And they're, there's somewhat working with with us or with Starfleet. Right. But I do like the line that the Commodore has where he says basically, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we had a huge price on your head, so forgive me if I'm not 100% trusting you just yet. Right. Exactly. And I thought that was great. Yeah, I think that I think that was a great uh callback to the recent past. Uh of course the fact that um that Kirk went through all that and then of course the Klingon bastard killed his son, you know. Which that didn't seems... come up at all yet. No. That, well, they, yeah, they're not, they're not going to talk about that anymore. But, uh, but even that, I mean, you know, Kirk's a hell of a guy, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Just a hell of a guy. And even more of a hell of a guy, as we'll see in the next issue. Yep. I think. Something I thought was kind of interesting, and kind of reminded me a little bit of some of the old Pike Enterprise series that we had read in the past is on page 11 in the briefing room where Kirk sits down and speaks to the mining transportation director. That meeting room on the Enterprise is huge. It's got a huge ceiling and stuff. So I think it's kind of cool. It's just, it's just not expected, uh, right. at least for me anyway. I mean, I know they had bigger budgets in the movies and stuff, but, I mean, except for the first episode when they had that big thing where they had, you know, supposedly the whole crew in one part of the ship. You know, you didn't see as much of that kind of big, opulent rooms in the other movies. They just didn't spend the money on that kind of stuff as much. But in this drawing, the ceiling is really high in this ship's, um, in the ship's conference room. Well, that room where Kirk has the steering wheel, that, I remember that one being pretty big, wasn't it? Oh, I don't think the ceiling was that big. Uh, maybe not. It was just a big room. It was a big room, but not as tall. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Of course, technically speaking, in a lot of uh, film productions, you never see the roof anyway, because that's right. where they got all the microphones and lights and stuff. But, you know, sometimes they purposely show ceilings so you can, you know, see what size it is. And, and I, don't remember, I remember seeing anything that big, uh, except maybe in the first movie, like I said. Right. Now, over at the, um, it's gone now, but at Las Vegas, the Star Trek experience. Cool. The, um, you know, they had the Enterprise D bridge there. Yep. And it was actually built out, so you had the the roof and the, you know, it was a 360 degree set. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the lady said that when, you know, our little tour guide, because we went on the, the private tour or whatever, mm-hmm. and she said that when William Frakes 
visited. And and when he went to that bridge, he was all excited because he had never seen the bridge the way it was depicted there. Because, you know, he always saw it. You know, they never had the roof. You know, they never had a ceiling. They never had, you know, if they were filming the front, there was nothing in the back. And if they were filming the back, there was nothing in the front. Right. So it was like the first time he'd seen what the, the Enterprise thing. should have looked like all along. Right. Which which was kind of a cool thought when you think about it. It's just like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense that you always had to put the camera somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I thought that was cool. And, and yeah, you're right. You Unless they screw up, you don't usually see the roof unless they're purposely trying to make you think it's huge. Yeah, so they actually show it to you or something. Right. Or like Citizen Kane, that famous thing where he's kind of getting really antsy and stuff, and it's shot from the floor upward, so you really see the ceiling. Unless the uh, the director wants to do that for some reason, you don't see ceilings. Like in Evil Dead 2, they do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but what's funny is Which that part? E- Which Evil part Dead 2, when, uh, when, the, when the Evil Dead is chasing Ash throughout the, uh, the cabin. Throughout the house? Oh, yeah. the cabin, right, 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 yeah. right, right. And what's, what's, what's great is that you can tell there is no roof. There's no roof at all, except yeah. it's still filmed that way. And you can see like little rafters ever so often where they would hang mics and stuff. <laughs> but yeah. Because it's moving so fast. And you, can, and you can also tell that the ceiling stop, or the walls stop at about six feet. And then there's nothing above it. Yeah. Yep. But it was just like, yeah, nobody's going to notice. No, it's, it's moving so fast. And, and you're kind of going through a mousetrap kind of set of halls, narrow halls and stuff. As Yeah, that was moving so fast. Yeah, they actually built that whole set in a gymnasium. So they just built the, the cabin interior in, in a gymnasium. So, oh, so when you looked up, you saw the gymnasium top, but it was you know, <laughs> 12, 15 feet high or whatever, sure. whatever a gymnasium roof is. Right. Anyways, we're not talking about Evil Dead. We're talking about Star Trek. No, that's a hell of a movie, though. One of my favorites. Yeah, one of mine too. So the the Nidran Queen, what did you think of her look? She's uh, very alien looking in that one panel she's in. Yeah, and she she has no nose, period. Yeah, that's kind of a cool look. Yeah, uh, she's all pasty white, kind of like kind of like the uh, world, singer. world singer and purple, well, purple hair. But yeah, she's got and, and kind of weird uh, eyebrows. But yeah, no no nose is the biggest thing. Right. I thought she would have a bigger part in the story, but she's only in that one panel or two right. panels. Yeah, I agree. I thought that, I thought more was going to be made of her. I mean, she's not even worth mentioning, quite frankly. Uh, right. I mean, the, the, the scene isn't really all that important either, uh, to be perfectly honest. But, yeah. Nope. Nope. And my last comment is the um, the the alien race, the the... Tyrions, or however we're going to pronounce them. Yeah. Uh, it just seemed a little odd that they're a fairly new race that's only been spacefaring for a few years, and they've already built ships that can go warp 15, 14. Uh, we'll do- talk about it more next issue, but I, I just that was a hard pill to swallow here in this first issue. Do we know they haven't been spacefaring for that long? Well, or do we just know? They, they said well, they've they, only been... They, most of their conquests have been local. But does local mean on their planet or just in their general neighborhood, which might not be uh, all that close to the Federation? I thought that he actually said that it's only been – okay, he says um, 20 star systems up from nothing in just a few short years. 
the Tyran Legion is a power to be reckoned with. So I kind of got the feeling that they'd already taken over 20 star systems in just a couple of years that they've been space-worthy, space-faring. Wow. That's impressive. But still, if, if a, somebody that was taking over that much, that many systems that close to the Federation and Klingon borders, don't you think we would have heard from them by now? Yes. Seemed just seemed weird. Well, another, but I have more things that are weird when we get to the next, uh, yeah, the next issue about them. But I guess they're right up there with Sala and his people. They're supposedly this huge well, yeah. organization of baddies, and yet we've never heard of them before. Yeah, we've never heard of them before, but the Federation in general has. So it's like like Sala and company. It was like, oh yeah, they've been around. It's just. You know, they just did. We didn't just didn't see them in any of the stories. Right. Where this one, no one's seen them before. Klingons or the Federation, right? Until just now. All right, so we'll talk about next issue. All right, so we ready to move on? Let's do. All right, so issue number eighteen, also entitled "Partners." So I'm assuming it's a part two. Uh, all the writing and creative staff is the same. Just had to double check. So I'm not going to go through that. Issue number 18, April 1991. The cover starts off with a pretty cool picture of the Enterprise flying towards camera with like a supernova exploding behind it. And the title Star Trek is below the Enterprise instead of at the top. And there's a nice Starfleet logo below that. The story starts off with McCoy and Kirk playing chess. And they're recapping last issue. McCoy eventually wins the game, and Kirk accuses him of never being able to beat him before McCoy hosted Spock's Katra during Star Trek II and Star Trek III, which McCoy takes offense to. Kirk also contemplates that the upcoming venture with the Klingons might go a long way to create a peace between the two people. Ahura then contacts Kirk and tells him that the Klingon battlecruiser is on the move. Upon arriving on the bridge, Spock informs the captain that the Klingon vessel is heading to the same place that the Lafayette and the Quiho were attacked last issue. Ahura informs the captain that she has just been able to decode the message that she got last issue. And it is a message informing the Trion Legion that there is a combined Starfleet Klingon convoy. Kirk speculates the reason for this misinformation since there is no such convoy. On the Klingon battlecruiser, Captain Kaiden is confused why they have departed without the Enterprise since he was told by Commander Kreza that there would be a convoy, which he promptly relayed back to the Trion. The Commodore orders the cloak, and they arrive where the Trion ships are planning to ambush the supposed convoy. The Klingons are able to pierce their cloaks with their sensors, and they start an attack. Uh, they're able to destroy one of the vessels, and the other two are, are damaged. Actually, the other three are damaged, but they return to the Trion fleet at a speedy warp 15. Caden knows that he has been found out and demands a warrior's right to a quick execution. Commodore Kesri tells him that he has no need to worry. He will be executed, but he has other plans for him right now. So we go back to the Enterprise, where Kirk is contacted by the Commodore, who informs him that he knows that there are only eight ships remaining in the enemy's fleet, 
and that they are not as invincible as once feared. Commodore Kesri demands that they should plan a massive preemptive strike. Kirk disagrees, and the Klingon Commodore accuses that Starfleet's major weakness is that they're being defensive and not offensive. But the Klingon does share that he knows who the other traitor is. A short time later, Kirk is informing Miss Galleon about Xander's being the traitor. She wants to rush out and kill him, but Kirk suggests that he has another plan. And before we hear that plan, we flash to Kirk contacting the Klingons, asking them to postpone the attack on the Tryon. He informs the Commodore that they have problems with their Robert injectors and that they're needing to be repaired. He says that it'll take one full day to complete. The Klingons reluctantly agree to delay. On the planet, Miss Galleon is informing Xander that she knows that he's the traitor. And instead of being mad that he is the traitor, she's really mad that he didn't let her in on it. She wants to get rid of the Klingons and Federation just as bad as he does because she's wanting to get rid of them so she can make more profit. Xander falls for it, and a short time later, the two of them arrive at the Tryon fleet in a small shuttle. They land in a landing bay and are greeted and taken to the Tryon leader. When the shuttle bay is empty, Scotty, Sulu, and Ahura pop out of some storage compartments in the shuttle, just like in Star Wars. So, as Miss Galleon is convincing the Tryons of her intentions, the crew are snooping around. Scotty and Sulu even beam over to one of the other ships in the fleet. Ahura has some time to plant some malicious code, and then she beams them back, and they go back into the shuttle and depart with Galleon. When they arrive at the Enterprise, the crew pop out of the compartments again and arrest Xander for being a traitor. Kirk informs the Klingons about the information that they were able to gather, that several of the ships in the fleet are just shells. Later, the Enterprise and the Klingon cruiser arrive at the Tryon fleet. Before they can even fire a shot, the enemy ships lose all power due to the code that Ahura introduced. She is just that good. The Klingons want to go ahead and destroy the unarmed enemy. Kirk refuses and even puts himself in the line of fire. After a warning shot, the Klingons eventually back down. The Tryon leader is killed by his second-in-command, and an open dialogue ensues with Starfleet and the Tryon to discuss treaties and borders. And then the story ends with Kirk reflecting that this could be a good beginning of an ongoing truce with the Klingons. The end. That's right. Because as the Organians said, at some point in the future, the Klingons and Federation will be allies. Yeah, I did like the reference to the Organians. Yes. I don't I don't remember that episode. Is it uh It's not who watches the watcher, was it? Mm, I don't know that I've ever heard of that episode before. Who watches, who watches the, watcher? the watcher? I, I uh, don't know that one. That might have been a next generation episode. Maybe. What's it called? Uh, I don't remember exactly, quite frankly. I mean, uh, but that, of course, was the beginning of the Oregonian peace, peace Treaty and all that kind of stuff. But the name of the particular episode where the, Klingon, where the Klingons and uh, Kirk and Spock undercover left right. on the uh, alien planet and compete, I, I don't remember the name of it. Yeah, I don't either. It was, it was, it was an okay one. Oh, I think it was good. I especially liked uh, 
when uh, Kirk and Spock were playing the kind of like World War II French underground kind of uh, guerrilla warfare kind of guys. Right. I guess what I didn't like about it was that the Organians turned out to be this all-powerful race that could just destroy all the weapons and all the ships and the whole universe if they wanted to. Yep. And so are yet- they Q's? Everything, everybody with godlike powers are accused, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, and then you never see them again. It's like, but they're always, like, in the back of everybody's mind that they they could just destroy us if we don't follow this truce. Exactly. And yet, they never do. No. I, but, I'm actually kind of trying to look, oh, Errand of Mercy. There it is. So there you go, Errand of Mercy, that's the name. Yeah, well, I, honestly, I was more I was happy that they mentioned the Organians in this issue instead of just relying on we already know that the Klingons are f- friendly in the Next Generation timeline. Yes, right. so that they're kind of trying to tie in with something from the original series versus just saying we are. You already know this is going to happen, so we're going to try to lay it out here. Right, put down a few of the uh, paving stones on the way to. Uh... Mutual peace and just good feelings. Yeah. And it's funny because this book came out a year before Star Trek VI. So, and Star Trek VI obviously is, is in that same line. Oh, yes. Yeah. How does how does the Federation go from Star Trek V, where the Klingons are the bad guys, to the next generation where we're somewhat allies? Exactly. And then, of course, we know the the later events. Kittimer? Well, wherever Worf is when he's a kid. Right, which is the same place where Star Trek VI takes place. There you go. There you go. The Kittimer Accords. There you go. So you were were teasing last issue something about some ship design? Yeah, let me me just first say that I really like this two-parter. I thought the writing was very good. I uh, I thought the art was not great, but, you know, there were some that were okay. But I really do think it was a very good story, and I like this Howard Weinstein guy, uh, who has written some good things in the past, and some not-so-good things, too. <laughs> but it was interesting, in the back of the first issue, when they were talking about who would be writing the next couple issues, they, they mentioned Howard. And I, I just wanted to put the little piece of trivia there, that Howard has had Star Trek story writing experience before. He actually was the youngest person to sell a script to a Star Trek franchise, and it was to the animated series for the second season episode titled Pirates of Orion. So, I guess he was a young man when he uh, when he sold that one. And yeah, I think he was uh, 17 or 18. Wow, you're kidding me. Wow, that's something. To talk about, uh, I mean, especially if he was, I mean, he could have just been a writer, you know, and he just latched onto Star Trek as a possibility to sell something. But he could have been a big fan, too. I mean, could you imagine being 17 years old, big fan, and you write a script that you actually sell? I mean, that's wow. That must be something. Yeah. In fact, I think he was. I think he was 17 when the show was made because I I saw a little interview with him and he said that he and all his high school friends were watching the animated series because they knew his show was going to come on mm-hmm. at some point. So they would all go to his house every Saturday morning to watch <laughs> the cartoon. So they didn't tell him when they were going to air it? Well, according to the interview I saw, it, it kind of seemed like maybe he didn't know exactly when it was going to be. Right. Huh. Cool. Yeah, anyway. I, thought, I thought it was funny. Yeah, I think this so was he, good. He, he must have been really young. 
Yeah, amazing. Okay, well, okay. Let, let's let's talk about the birds. Although I do want to eventually get back to. Well, let's, let's talk about let's talk about the Tyrian ships. How about that for a pronunciation attempt? I don't think I've done that one before. Tyrion. So on page 20, there are four Tyrion ships when they come out of cloak and they're ready to attack the Enterprise. When I saw that picture, it was like bird heads, bird heads, bird heads, bird heads. They're like angry birds, you know, from the little little game. But really, they look like those little blue birds in that early Pixar short called The Birds. Or For the Birds, that's it. For the Birds. Did you ever see that? Uh, yeah, where the big bird comes and sets on the exactly. The line. You, got, you got a bunch of little blue birds on the electric line, and then a big gawky kind of a blue bird. Every all the birds are blue. Gets it on the line too, and 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 pulls it down. And anyway, it's pretty good. And those little birds, those little angry birds that are really vindictive and stuff, they look like these Tyrion ships, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I can see it. Yeah, was again like I said last issue, uh, wasn't blown away with the with the ships. No, but you know, I guess I mean, as you're gonna do a new Star Trek comic, and you know, you have to do a totally new alien race that really doesn't seem to have had any contact with anybody, so their ship has to look very different. Uh huh. It is different. It sold that part of it. Yeah. One of the things I do like about the storyline, especially, is I, I like Kirk's non-violent solution. I really like. You know, the Klingon Commodore wants to, you know, go preemptive strike, kill everybody and rape their women. But Kirk is like, no, hold on, let's back off. And then uh, it's pretty cool that even in the end, he's able to turn the Tyrions rather than resulting to, uh, you know, destroy them all. Uh, I I think that was cool, although I have one comment about that, one last unsatisfying comment. It's great that everybody was friends at the end and singing Kumbaya, but over half of the Lafayette's crew was killed. A goodly portion of the Klingon light cruiser crew was killed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, it's nice that the killing of the Tyrion commander by the lieutenant, okay, that's some payback. But it's like, I don't know. There's just a little bit of tooth for a tooth thing in the back of my head, my caveman part of my brain, where I'm just thinking, you know, those guys did a lot of stuff and they seem to be getting off scot-free. Yeah, I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. I mean, she said, what, 40-something people died on her ship? Yep, and, yeah, and it's, and it's like 100 people on the ship or something. or you know, So it was, it was like half of the people. Right, yeah, that's a good point. Anyway. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, the part I didn't like about the, the ending was it, it just seemed like too many coincidental things just happened to fall in place at the right time. So, I mean, yeah. O'Hara was just happened to be able to put in some code or whatever into their computer systems that caused them all to crash. Right. And, I mean, Kirk didn't really act like he was expecting that to happen. Oh, I, I, thought, it, I thought it was part of the plan. Oh, okay, well... Because remember the one point when, when Kirk is going, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great if we're able to settle all of this without having to fire a shot? Wouldn't that piss off the, uh, the Commodore? Uh, so you think he already Commodore. had the plan, or he already knew what was going to happen then? Because I was kind of getting the feeling I thought that so. he was I trying to come up with a plan. But no, you're, yeah. you could be right. I mean, it would make sense that she would tell him that she put in that code, but that's a huge gamble to just hope that it actually worked. Right, but, you know, shades of uh, Independence Day or whatever. 
I mean, <laughs> exactly. Did, did, did they do something to? And of course, this came out before Independence Day, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. But I mean, w- w- was there some kind of timer on her little bug? And by the way, when did Ahura become a computer hacker? But whatever. Um, She's just that good. She is just that good, and they made a big point of that. It's just, <laughs> I just, I just didn't know she was a computer hacker. So was it a time thing? Did they send a signal that they didn't mention in the book that triggered it? Was it when they powered up their weapon systems? Is that what triggered the little piece of code? I don't know. Yeah, see, that's what I was figuring that it was something to do with when they brought their shields up or something. Yeah. But it still seemed odd, and and that whole like covert mission that Scotty, Sulu, and Ahura was on right. seemed really Random. odd. I mean, first they pop out of storage compartments, just like Star Wars, mm-hmm. and you half expected Sulu to say, you know, I never expected to smuggle myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then what's funny is that they're at the computer, uh, and they're going to beam over to that other ship, and Sulu just says, nobody bothered me when I wandered around the station. Yep. And then I'm like, what? When did you wander around the station? And, and I was really confused as to what the heck he was talking about there. Well, they didn't show it, but obviously he got out of the ship and walked around the station, which is like, okay, how did you know that there were any other aliens on that ship other than the Tyrians? Because right. you're going to stick out like a sore thumb, George. So yeah, it, it was really odd. It was risky. And then when they had the idea, hey, let's just beam over to one of these ships that are empty. I mean, there's no... Well, they didn't even know they were empty. Let's just beam over to the ship. I'm sure we won't stick out there either. Oh, they didn't know it. Oh, okay, gotcha. So they didn't know it was empty. And then when they got there, they found out it was empty and then just a shell of a ship. But they didn't know that going in. Yeah. Well, they definitely seem to have a a very loosey-goosey kind of, you know, go over in the ship. You're in there. But, like, no no plan to plant charges... Maybe general plans to, like, like gather intel and stuff. And then they just so happened, luckily, to discover that half of the ships don't even have engines in them. Right. Uh, and their technology really isn't that good. It's like, uh, it's all slipshot stuff because it's a relatively new spacefaring, uh, very quickly expanding uh, race. But they still never explained how they had Warp 15. Exactly. Yep, I agree. I mean, because they couldn't steal it. I mean, nobody else that we knew of in the in the, in the general vicinity of the uh, Alpha Quadrant has uh, ships any faster than the uh, Federation and Klingons. Right. Yep, good question. And in the beginning of the, of the story, they really do make these guys look like supermen. And it's interesting how they explained over time how they weren't all they were cracked up to be. Beginning of the first issue, it was like I was starting to kind of like worry a little bit. It's like, who are these guys? I mean, they got—they supposedly have superior weapons and a superior cloak, and they can go warp fifteen, and they got a bunch of ships. It's like, oh, these guys could be, be a real threat. Yeah. But then by the end, they're like, ah, eh, they're just—they're fo- just fakers. Yeah. Well, I, I'm okay with them faking everything except for how do you fake going warp fifteen? Warp fifteen. Yep. Well, yeah, and how did they... Well, okay, the Lafayette couldn't even bring up her shields. Couldn't bring them up. And I thought that was more from a standpoint that not necessarily that they had encountered that much damage, but that something was preventing them from bringing it up. And it's like, wow. 
I mean, are they somehow affecting the, sh- the ship systems or something? I mean, it was really making them sound like... Uh, I mean, they couldn't even get a, sh- a shot off on these guys. Yeah, and surprise no. was a surprise was a big element here, but I mean that one girl did say she was seeing she had detected some kind of anomalies. So. Right. Yeah, and maybe there was you know, I kept waiting for them to say that there was a traitor or something on the Lafayette as well. Hmm. But they never they never did. No, but that would have made more sense, wouldn't it? Because it took but maybe that's because by that point the crew knew that there was a, a bad alien in the area, and the Lafayette was pretty much—it was very much a surprise. But it's because the uh, the, the evil captain, Klingon captain, uh, screwed around with the uh, sensing equipment that really helped that attack work on the Klingons. Hmm. And they didn't seem to have that benefit when they attacked the Lafayette. Right. But they did have total surprise. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I, like I said, I, I like the story. Just the ending of it seemed a little abrupt, and some of it just didn't pat. make sense. How all the things just lined up together. Yep. Yep. Anyways, anything else? No. I, I just want to make one little note about the letters page. Like I said, the letters page had a lot of good stuff. This this did. episode. One of the people complained about some of the Hitchhiker's Guides to the Galaxy references in the last couple of Peter David books. Mm-hmm. You know, and we caught some of them, you know, like the old Jang spirits and things like that. But the the editor said that he didn't catch any of that, you know, and he was kind of chastising himself for, <laughs> you know, you know, he's read the books when he's... He, well, he of was, course he's read the books. And he's even interviewed Douglas Adams a few times, oh, but he, wow. he missed uh, the, the, references. the references. And he said that uh, he would make sure that they didn't happen again. <laughs> so, oh, make yeah. sure they didn't happen again? He didn't happen again. Oh. Because he said a lot of people were complaining, saying that, you know, if Star Trek's going to borrow from other things, then that's a, that's a you know kind of a cheap shot and it brings down or uh, this is just what the the letter said brought sure. down the franchise if you're going to borrow you're going to steal from other companies or other books you know we kind of th- saw it as kind of a joke but yeah. i guess i could see people a little wink a little, and a nod right i mean but you know i always heard that peter david kind of had a falling out with the star trek books in general for a while or at least the comic books yeah, and I'm wondering if maybe this is around that time when when that happened. Maybe they, you know, maybe he was putting too much humor in it. Maybe he was, you know, adding too many characters that Paramount or Gene Roddenberry made him get rid of. Right. Well, I wouldn't blame him because he introduced a lot of people in the original volume one. Like there was this character named Barclay or Bear Claw, Bear Claw or something like that. Right. And he introduced a whole bunch of people in there, and then that was one of the reasons why they rebooted it, because they wanted to get rid of all the secondary characters. Right. So, oh well. All right, anything well, else? And that might have been part of the reason, uh, what, the New Frontiers? Right. Where they wanted to create something that was very separate from the uh, next gen and the original series characters, so they could do more of what they wanted with it. Right. Yep. And did a good job in general. Uh, I think I think he's very good. At, he's a very good author. One of my favorites. Yep, mine too. All right. So you want to jump into the expanded stuff, or you you have anything else? I have nothing else on this one. All right. So for the expanded universe stuff for February, March, and April of 1991, uh, we had three novels. So in February there was an original series novel called Ghost Walker, 
by Barbara Hambly. I haven't read this one. I'm not a huge Barbara Hambly fan. I've read a couple of her books, and they were Star Wars ones, and they're not. I didn't care for them too much. But uh, the reason why I'm turned off on this book is because the alien on the cover is it's it's a Midgwin. That's the name of the the alien. But he looks like the. Remember a couple issues ago, we had that bird guy who had a beak for a nose and feather eyebrows and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, right. This guy looks like that. So every time I saw this book in the bookstore, I was just like, "Oh, I'm not going to read a book about this guy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was the he was the kind of heavy guy that was hanging out with the president or something, right? Right. He was like a a, a, a scribe or something in that right. in that issue. Right. But you know. When you see that kind of character on the cover of a book, and you have a picture of the original series Kirk, which I wasn't, again, gold-suited or gold-shirted Kirk was kind of a turnoff for me at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always gave that book a pass. So March 1991 had a uh, Next Generation novel called Continuum or Contamination, sorry, uh, by John Vorholt. And it's basically about a scientist gets murdered uh, on the Enterprise. And then, um, I guess, kind of the investigation is to find out what's going on. And something to do with her research. I haven't read that one either. But the book that came out in April, I have read, and it's very good, called A Flag Full of Stars by Brad Ferguson. Hmm. And it's part of the Lost Years storyline so what happened between the end of the five-year mission and before star trek the motion picture mm-hmm. and it's really good it's uh, admiral kirk overseeing the refit of the enterprise and at the same time all that's going on um there's like a klingon who lives on earth he's kind of exiled from the the klingon empire and he creates a device that can travel faster than anything ever. So mm-hmm. it actually, he creates a device that goes from Earth to Kronos and comes back in like a couple minutes. Hmm. And then it's like this race between the Klingons and the Federation to try to get that device as a as a weapon. So yeah. it's it's a it's a good story. Highly recommend anybody reading that one. Cool. So that's it for the expanded universe, and we'll go over the movies or episodes that were coming on Next Generation next week. So, speaking of next week, issues 16, 17, and 18 of Star Trek The Next Generation. Excellent. Back to Picard and the boys and gals. Yep, should be good. I'm looking forward to those books. Yeah, me too. So, that being said, I guess we'll see you guys next week. Sounds great. See you next time, everybody, on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Without a blinking. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.